The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to Psalm 139. That's where we'll be this morning. It's kind of embarrassing I'm going to ask this question after Spencer being up here. He's very stately and polished. And I'm going to ask a question about superheroes, which makes me sound dumb. But that's okay. I guess, but I, th- I think it's going to help with something. No matter what age you are here this morning, I'm going to guess that you've come across superheroes some sort, comic books, movies. There's different ways that, that you could have seen these. Some of you maybe like them more, more than others. And <clears throat> when we think about superheroes, we think about their powers, we think about you know, how, how great it would be to be Superman or whatever and be able to fly and all these, all these different things might come to our minds. Maybe you've been even asked that question before, you know, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? And everybody tries to think about what, what that would be. The problem that I've always had with superheroes <clears throat> is pretty simple. None of them are perfect. They all have flaws. If you were to ask me, you know, what superpower do you want? And I try to think through it. I might think of one, but then I think, yeah, but this would be nice too. And this would be nice too. But the question wasn't that you could have them all. It was just which one. And when we look at the different superheroes that people have thought up in their mind, right? They've created these people in their mind or these beings in their mind, and they put them down for movies or for comics, like I said, or for different stories. In their mind, they still don't even create the perfect superhero, do they? They still have these flaws. They still have these weaknesses. There's, there's still something that you could put by them that would cause them to be weak and lose their powers. There's still always something that causes them to be, to be flawed in some, in some way. The reason I say this is because as we approach Psalm 139, We're going to read it all here in a moment. But David grapples with the fact that God has no flaw. And we're going to look at that uh, more in depth this morning. As we look at the 139th Psalm, we're going to actually look at three of God's characteristics, the the omni-characteristics of God, his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the importance of that, that God is is all three of those things because if he misses just any of it, then he's just like these superheroes that we think up and are actually flawed and not perfect in their standard. So look along with me in Psalm 139 this morning. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning 
and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me. When as yet there was none of them, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. I would probably say this is my favorite psalm. Has been for a while. The pages in my Bible are actually hard to read. I use this sometimes at funerals and in some different uh, circumstances and situations. But it's pretty generally considered that you can break this psalm down into four sections, each one containing six verses. In the first six verses, David talks about God's omniscience or the fact that God is all knowing. We'll dive into that more here in a moment. But David discusses this and he, he gets to verse six and he exclaims in thinking about all that God knows of him. He says, such knowledge is just too wonderful for me. It's too high. I, I cannot attain it. And you could see this maybe as David being overjoyed, but I think you could also maybe see this as David being so, so scared almost that God knows him that that's where verse seven kind of comes from. Where can I flee from you? Being around somebody who's, who's all-knowing, how can I get away from you? You're just this powerful being that I see. But then in verses 7 through 12, we see David realizes, actually, I can't flee from you. There, there's nowhere that I can go uh, to be away from you. And this doesn't haunt David. It actually brings comfort to David. Because he realizes that God will lead him and that God will guide him and that God is always present with him. Then in verse 13 to 18, that section that we like to refer to when talking about how God has made us, how the power of God, God's omnipotence, his ability to be able to create. And David realizes this and talks about how God has actually formed him in his, in his mother's womb. It actually references like, like knitting, skillfully wrought together, the, the great care that God has took to make each and every person who has ever been created. It's not just some system that God has put into place and it's 
just like stamping new people out all over. We don't have that. We don't see that. No, in, in Scripture, it tells us that God very carefully made each and every one of us. And so even you yourself, God made you and created you, and he took great detail in doing that. And so as David comes to terms with all of these different things, and he thinks about how much God has thought of him and all this stuff, we actually get to an interesting point in verse 19 through 24 that some would say, I wish this wasn't in the psalm. It doesn't make sense, but it does make sense because David goes into this thing where he says, oh, slay the wicked God, how I hate the people who are your enemies, right? Those who would oppose you, I hate them. And right, really what is happening here is you're seeing David coming to term with God's character, with God's attributes, being wowed by this and understanding that his only response to God can be to fall in line with God. And therefore, the enemies of God need to be the enemies of David. And so he's speaking here out of perfect hatred for God's enemies. And that's, this is key, perfect hatred, okay? We don't see that very often today. We see hatred, but I don't think we could call it perfect hatred, all right? It's not just a bloodlust that David has. No, he's saying he wants God's wrath to be just, and he understands that it's just against his enemies. And so David is calling for that. And we really see the heart of David in this in verses 23 and 24 there at the end of this psalm, because after saying this, right, about God's enemies, look what David says. He says, but search me, O God, know my heart. So even in the midst of him proclaiming this, he says, God, know my heart though, examine me, try me, know my anxieties. See, God, if there's any wicked in my heart, am I speaking from a place of wickedness or am I speaking from a place of pure righteousness in saying these things that I'm saying? I would dare any person, Christian or non-Christian, to pray this prayer daily that David ends with in verse 23 and 24. To go before God every morning and every night and to say, God, search me and try me and find if there's any wicked way in me. Know my anxieties, God. Help me to see them. Help me to know them. I really think that would be a humbling prayer because I believe God would answer that prayer. And he reveals to our heart and in our lives the struggles that we really do have. The things that we struggle with in terms of maybe dealing with other people maybe even dealing with ourselves. And I really think it would solve a lot of problems if we held true to this prayer within the church when it came to us dealing with each other. Well, let's look at these omni-attributes of God. And I got a lot here. I'll go fast. I'm not saying I won't go long. I'm just saying I'm going to talk fast. <clears throat> but in the first six verses, David here talks about God's omniscience, about God's omniscience. One of the things that we have to realize when we say that God is omniscient is we know that God knows himself. All right. In first Corinthians chapter two, verse 11, it says, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the spirit of God. 
I don't know if you've ever come across people. You talk to them, you get to know them a little bit, and you leave that conversation thinking, that is a very confused person. I don't even think they know what they think they know. I don't even think they know themselves. They're very wishy-washy. Maybe they go back and forth on things a lot. They don't even take a stand on anything whatsoever. And you wonder, do you really know yourself? This isn't the case with God. God knows who he is, and that cannot be denied. But then further talking about God's omniscience, we have to understand that God has perfect knowledge. I'm going to break this down into a few areas. In saying that God has perfect knowledge, the Bible speaks, first of all, that God knows all things past, present, and future. Past, present, and future. In Isaiah 46, verse 8 through 10, it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to my mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other God. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. You see, there's nothing else, nobody else who can claim this, to know all things past, present, and future. There's absolutely nothing that surprises God. Nothing that happens takes him by surprise and shocks him. It's actually pretty interesting because when you look in scripture and you look at the prophecies that were made concerning Jesus in the Old Testament, the prophecies that said, this is the Messiah, this is what he's going to do, all these different things. Did you know most of those prophecies are fulfilled by the enemies of God? So not the people who want the prophecies to come about, not the people who want God to be honored and magnified. In fact, it's the exact opposite people who are fulfilling most of the prophecies that happen and that take place. Nothing at all can stop God's plans. We'll talk more about that when we get to God's omnipotence. The other thing about God's perfect knowledge that we need to understand is that God never learns anything new. This doesn't happen to him. He already knows all things. In fact, scripture tells us that God instantly knows all things. In Romans chapter 11, verse 34, it says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? There has been none. Me, I need teachers. Me, I need books. I can read a, a passage of scripture that seems so plain, but then you go to people who are much smarter than me and you start to see, man, there's a lot more here than I ever thought. I just understood the surface level of this passage, but when you see how it connects Old Testament, New Testament, all these different things, I, I get wowed. It's, it's pretty amazing, actually, to read about it and to learn these things. This isn't the case for God. He has no group of men that he surrounds himself with to say, hey, let's, let's think this through. He doesn't go to his mother to say, mom, is this right? Is this polite? Is this just? Is this true? He doesn't need to do these things. Nobody teaches him anything. In fact, in knowing all things, the Bible tells us he even knows the very smallest details concerning life. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 30. It says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. One of the things that I've heard from 
people who are atheists who don't believe in God, one of their one of their things against those who believe in God, they ask the question, do you really think God cares about you in the midst of all of this that's going on? What makes you think that you're so special that God would want to hear from you in prayer or want to speak to you through his word? Why would he deal with, with you when he's got all of this other stuff going on? And now that's a legitimate question. Because if I go up to even just some celebrity, if I go up to some politician, they don't care who I am. You know, I, you can yell out, hey, 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 can I get a picture with you? Hey, hey, can I, can I shake your hand? Can I, can I get your autograph? And chances are they're just going to blow by you because it happens to them all the time. They're not too concerned about you. They're not too worried about you. Now, I'm not saying they're mean people or anything like that. It's just they're people. They got things to do, right? They've got stuff that needs to draw their attention and they just simply don't have time for you or me. This isn't the case with God. He has such perfect knowledge that he knows every little thing about your life. And not just your life, but the person sitting next to you. The person who decries, there is no God. Guess what? God knows everything about them. Everything. Every moment of their being. Not only that, Scripture speaks in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, and also in verse 23. It tells us God has so much knowledge that he even knows other possibilities that could have happened if he had chose for it to go that way. You say, well, I think you're stretching scripture here a little bit. Well, look at it with me real, real briefly. It says, woe to you, Terezin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. See, God, God's saying, if these things would have been done there, they would have right away turned. Because of your wickedness, you're not willing to turn. So we see this idea that even the, even the other possibilities, if God had ordained that, would have happened. Then we also see in Scripture, I've talked about this a little bit already, God's perfect knowledge of man. David talks about this in, in this psalm that we have read in the first six verses of how God knows us better than we even know ourselves. And this is such a tough reality for many of us because we believe we know ourselves better than anybody. We believe there is nobody or no thing that can know Tim better than, better than Tim. Right? I know it's always going on in my life because I'm always there. It's always happening. I know what's going on in my head because sadly, I'm always there. Even though you might want to get out of there, you can't get out of there. And you think, nobody knows me better than me. But the fact is, the Bible tells us, and what David speaks of here in the first six verses, is that God knows you way better than you know yourselves. I believe we're so good at lying that we are able to even deceive ourselves. But what we have to understand is that God is the creator of us. God is the one who is in control of us. We like to think that we are in control of our life, but that just isn't true. You like to think that you are the captain of your own ship. That's not true. God is the captain of your ship. 
Now, I'm not saying anything negative. If you have this bumper sticker, if you have this license plate, please don't take it off your car. I don't mean anything by it, okay? But the things that say God is my co-pilot put you on the same level as God. He is no co-pilot. He's the pilot. You're, you're nothing, okay? So to think that you bring something to the table shows me, shows myself, I've just deceived myself. And you've deceived yourself. God has such perfect knowledge of man. But then as we get to verses 7 through 12, David talks about God's omnipresence. Because if you have a God who is all-knowing, but that is it, you just have an annoying God. <laughs> I'm just being honest. If, if he's just an all-knowing God, that's just frustrating. Because there's nothing he's doing with that knowledge. But God is also omnipresent. What we see in scripture is only God has this attribute. And I want to remind us of this because I think we have been tricked into thinking that others have this attribute of omnipresence. No created being has this attribute, being everywhere all the time. And please hear this. That includes Satan himself. Satan does not have the attribute to be in all places at all times. In fact, Satan tells us in Luke chapter 4, when he is tempting Christ, he tells us that any power that he has has actually been given to him. It's been given to him. It tells us this in Luke chapter 4, verse 6. And trying to, again, in trying to deceive Christ, it says, and said to him, this is Satan speaking, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. Why? For it has been delivered to me, and then I can give it to whom I will. I think sometimes we think Satan is on the same level as God, and he's hovering, and you'll hear Christians say, like, Satan is tempting me now, this is happening, Satan is doing this battle to me. Listen, Satan is not everywhere all the time. That's, that's just not in his power. That has not been given to him. Now, yes, he has his little minions who go and do his work for him. And so if that's what you mean when you say Satan is tempting me now that in his work and those who are under him, then yes, that would be true. But please don't for a second think that Satan is so powerful that he is everywhere all the time because only God has this attribute. Also, we see in scripture that God is outside of time and he is outside of space. This is one of those brain busters that make our heads explode. Me and Gary Ball were talking about this a few weeks ago. It's very hard for us to comprehend but space is actually in God, not God in space. That's how it functions. I know that's above our level before lunch for a lot of us. But that's just the truth. A little quote I came across. Uh, a Russian cosmonaut went to space. I think I've said this before. And looking out into space when he went up there, he said he looked for God in space and he simply saw nothing. And he came back to declare God is not there. He's not in space. But the old pastor, W.A. Criswell, he said, just take your suit off for one second and I promise you, you'll see him. You'll see him real shortly. You see that, that astronaut probably being very smart, very well educated, something that many of us would want to attain to, didn't understand. Space does not hold God. God holds space. 
He's outside of those things. He, he has created all of that. Nothing can contain him. This is what the second commandment talks about. The second commandment, right, tells us not to make a carved image. Do not make any likeness of God. Why? Because nothing can hold him. Nothing can contain him. Nothing that you can make, no matter how beautiful it is, can even touch a fraction of the beauty of God and of who he is. And so there's nothing in this world that we can even imagine or conceive of that is on par with God. This, is, this goes back to my superhero thing. Why do they make superheroes with flaws? Because it'd be a really boring book or a really boring movie. If at the beginning of the movie, it's, there's a superhero, it's God, every attribute, the end. No enemies come against him. And nothing touches him. Nobody tries to outwit him because it would be foolish. It would be stupid. It would be dumb. That's why we can't create those things. But yet that's the God that we have. Nothing can contain him. Not even the temple that was called to be made can contain our God. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, it says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. We make this building and it, sure, it has some nice attributes. It has some things that are not nice, like that one thing up there that fell down. That's super annoying. I see it every day. Some great things in here. But listen, when you walk in here, this building does not contain God. This building does not house God. You come in here and you pray at these steps. It's no different than you praying at home. There's nothing miraculous about this building and how it can hold some special piece of God. Nothing contains him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John, in, in, in seeing this, says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Those things couldn't even be around God because of his vastness, because of his bigness. Now, when we hear something like this, that God is everywhere all the time and he's all-knowing, this is good news, but it's also bad news. Let me start with the bad news. The bad news, I guess, is this. He knows you and he knows where you are. Now, that can be a scary thing if you are living apart from God. If, if you haven't been found in Christ, if you haven't been saved by his grace, if you're living your life as your captain of your ship, this should scare you to death when we read Psalm 139. To know that God knows absolutely everything about you and you cannot run from him. I don't care how far on Lake Erie you go. He knows you're there. He can find you. And I know that would be a scary place to be. Because again, if we don't just deceive ourselves all the time, Deep down, we know what kind of people we can be. We know what hatred we can hold in our heart for all kinds of different people. Right? We, we know where that can lie. I'll just speak from personal, personal thing. This is so you, you know for me. All this stuff that's going on in the world with racism and things. I, I was talking to somebody recently and 
For me, I've never, had a, I've never had a huge problem with people of different color skin, but I've always had a problem of people of different socioeconomic levels than me. When I was a kid, I hated the people who went to the country club. And if I had a friend who would invite me there, no, I'm not dealing with those people. They think they're better than me. They think this, they think this, they think this. Now I've got to tell you, looking back, all that does is reveal Tim's heart. Not them. They didn't do anything to me. In fact, a family who went there took me in and loved me like I was their own after a while. But I had that hatred in my heart for absolutely no good reason other than Tim is a sinner, a desperate, wicked sinner. But the good news of this side of God being everywhere and present all the time is although God knows me, in my greatest need, he tells me he's there for me. He's there for me. In Matthew chapter 28, when God would send out the disciples, he would tell them, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth, as he would call them to go out. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, I don't, I'm not going to read these. It tells us that we can always rely on him. Why? Because he's always there. He's always there. You guys know this. Your pastor's not always there. My wife's husband's not always there, right? I, my kid's dad, he's not always there. No matter how much I might want to be, no matter how much I might try to be, I just can't do it because I'm not omnipresent and I'm also not all-knowing. And so I just fall short, but we don't have that with God. With God, we have the opposite. He is always there and he cares for us. And so and then in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, it tells us wherever we are, he is there. Well, that's two of the attributes. Let me quickly go through the last one because again, still, if we have a God who's all-knowing and we have a God who's everywhere all the time, it doesn't mean anything if he doesn't have the power to do something, right? It doesn't mean a thing. Well, great, you know everything and you're always around. Now you're really annoying because I can't get away from you. You keep telling me all this stuff you know, but I, I, can't, I can't flee from you because you're always here, but if you know the car is coming and it's about to smash, can you do something about it? Can you, can you change maybe some things? Can you, can you help me out? When we look at God's omnipotence, we see number one, that he's infinite in power. All power is his, scripture will declare over, over, and over again in Job 38. I read this just a couple weeks ago when he would look at Job and he would say, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have this understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, right? He's speaking of his power there. Or in Jeremiah 32, 27, behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? No, the answer is, is No. Because he has the power to do it. Not only is it infinite in power, God is irresistible in his power. No one can stop God's purposes. No one. God would go on in Job 42 too. Job would say this in responding to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. <laughs> now think about that in relation to your life. How easy is it for your plans to get thwarted. I'm talking easy. 
I'm, I'm hopefully going on vacation next week. If the governor will hold out a little longer and not close us all down, I'm going on vacation next week. People I get to go on vacation with, guess what they're already telling me? It's going to rain and it's going to thwart our things. It's going to rain. 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 It's going to change everything. Right? Why? Thwarted our plans. It's going to ruin all of our plans. See how easy it is for us to lose power? How easy it is for us to lose control, but yet not God. Nothing can stop his purposes. God does not struggle for even a second to achieve his will. He does everything absolutely effortlessly. Effortlessly. Another thing that I think we get tricked into when it comes to God and Satan and that thing. I think sometimes we think right now it's God won, Satan won. There's a tie. Oh, in the end, God's going to win. But for right now, it's a tie. No, it's not. It is not a tie. It's not even really a game anymore. God has won. He is, he's victorious. Jesus would declare what? It is finished. It is over. There is no more game. It's won completely. We see this in God alone. It's also inexhaustible, inexhaustible in its power. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 tells us that God never grows weary. It says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I've gotten to the age now. I know I'm not old, but I'm not extremely young anymore either. And I have to go to the doctor and say, something weird's going on here. And the answer is, you're getting older. Oh, okay. I didn't know your eyes could do that. I didn't know that my legs would feel that way. I didn't know my head would, would function that way. Oh, that's just normal. It'll get worse. Have fun. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what you hear. And I feel it in myself. But this is not the God we serve. God never grows weary. He never grows faint. His power is inexhaustible. But it's also incomprehensible. God can do more than anyone could ever imagine. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The power of God is beyond even our imagination. And I want to pause here for a moment to say this, because to some of you, I said it's scary to think that God knows you. And it's scary to think that at this very moment, God is right by you. He is with you. But apart from Christ, that's a horrible thought. To be in the presence of a holy God in all of my sin, I want to flee from him. I would want to get away from him, but I can't. You're telling me I can't. But the good news of that is that in God's power, he can do all things, even bring you, a sinner, into his family through the blood of Christ. That's the power that's being talked about here. It's the power that saves a sinner like me. We also see that God's power is self-consistent. 
His power works perfectly with his attributes. And that's what I was talking about before. We have a God who is all knowing. He's everywhere all the time. And he has the power to accomplish his will in all things. It's been set. It's in stone. It will be done. We can rest assured of it. We do not have to doubt it. And so for those of us who are found in Christ, that should bring us great comfort. Because this God who is so majestic, Scripture also tells us, and in the psalm that we read today, we see that this God is also very personal. So personal that he would form us in our mother's womb. That he would take the time to create you cell by cell, limb by limb. In Romans 8, chapter 15, it tells us that this this majestic God cares for us so much that he would adopt us into his family and let us call him dad. We don't have to address him as almighty, majestic God. He doesn't ask us to do that. He says, no, you're a part of my family. Now you call me, you call me father. You call me dad. I love you. Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. We see that God calls to his people and desires to hear from them. He wants to hear from them. He wants to speak with them. And then in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29 to 31, we see that he gives strength to his own. This God who is all-knowing, this God who is everywhere all the time, the God who is all-powerful for some reason would give power to his children to be able to make a difference in this world for the kingdom of God and for his glory and for his honor. That's what it means when you read a verse like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It does not mean you're a superhero. It does not mean that you can overcome any mountain that might be in your path. It's not what that verse is talking about. What it's talking about is it's saying the power of God has been given to me in salvation. And I have his power to overcome the things of this world, to have joy, to have hope, to have peace, to not be filled with anger all the time. I have the power to do these things. Why? Because he's given me his power through the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask the question, how do we respond to a God like this? Well, I think there's only two answers. Number one, We respond like David did in Psalm 139. We declare our allegiance to this God. We say, God, your enemies are my enemies. You search me. You know me. You find fault in me and help me to know. You take my anxieties. You take all my cares. I am yours. That would be the correct response. But sadly, it's a response that happens not very often. More often is the other response. We try to flee from this God. Or we act as if this God doesn't exist. We hear a sermon like this and we say, well, in 10 minutes I'll be outside and I don't have to think of this anymore. I can just go to my car and go off to lunch and do what I do. And I don't have to hear about this God for another week until I come back next week, if I come back. 
We form God into this image of our own self. We, we try to make him into something different so that we can feel comfortable with it without falling on our face before him and who he really is. We take a commandment like the second commandment, like we talked about before, that we teach to our kids. Hey, kids, don't carve for yourself any images or make a likeness of God. Yet I would say that's probably the sin we fall into the trap of the most. Because we take this God who's almighty, all powerful, everywhere all the time, and we try to form him into a different image to fit our lifestyle, to fit our brand, to fit into who we are. Because if I have to conform into who he is, people around me are going to notice. I'm going to have to change some things in my life. And I don't know if I can do that. It's very simple for all of us this morning. You will respond. Either like David, you are my God. Search me and know me. Or you will flee. And you'll say, yeah, I know all that stuff about that God, but it, it just, it doesn't fit into my time schedule right now. It doesn't fit into my lifestyle. It doesn't fit into the things that I like. And so maybe, maybe later. Maybe when I'm older, maybe when I have kids or maybe when my kids are out of the house and I'll have more time, I don't have to devote all my time to my kids. I can, I can get focused now. You get to respond. You get to choose. Are you a child of God? Or are you an enemy of God? I really think that's the question that we have to ha ask ourselves this morning. And my prayer and my hope is that God and his great power and his great grace will draw you to himself to see his loving kindness and his goodness that's not worth fleeing from, that's not worth running from because he's there too. He's everywhere. I trust that you'll respond to God's word this morning how you need to. Bow with me if you would. Let's pray and then we'll sing to close. God, I have to feel like David, that is, he would mention in verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's high. I cannot attain it. God, it's hard for us to grasp our head around who you are. Because, God, we're just so used to this life. We're so used to dealing with imperfection. We're used to dealing with disappointment, with failure. Oh, we have our good times too and our good things. But God, it's hard for us to comprehend perfection. And God, that's what you are. But God, you're not a perfect being. You're not perfect and you separate yourself from what you've created. No, your word tells us that you have come to be with those you've created. In Genesis, we see you walking in the garden with Adam and Eve in the evenings. As we go throughout your word, we see Jesus, fully God, fully man, coming to dwell on this earth bodily, to walk amongst creation. So God, while you're very majestic, while you are holy, while you are very separate from us and all those things, yet 
You've loved your own, your word says. You've saved them by your grace through Christ. And God, I, I pray and hope this morning that many in here can say that that's them, that they, they hold to that hope, that they, like David, would say, God, search me, know me, try me. But God, I have no doubt there's others in this room, there's others who might hear this message in other ways, who that's just not the case. They continue to flee from you. They continue to try to put you off. They continue to act as if, as if you don't see everything in their life, what they do in their secret place. God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth. God, I pray that you would break their heart of stone, that you would raise that dead life to a living life, a new life found in you. But God, I know that only you can do that. I cannot do that for them. Parents cannot do that for their children. Husbands and wives cannot do that for each other. God, it's something you must do for them and they must respond in faith. And so God, I pray that those who need to do that would do that here in this place this morning. God, for us who've been saved by your grace, I, I pray that you would help us to realize your majesty, realize how big you are, to realize those attributes. And God, I pray that that would draw us closer to you to say, yet in the midst of that, you would care for me. And God, that it would cause us to praise you, to worship you, to honor you, to serve you. God, we thank you that you are perfect. That is what we need. God, in a world that's searching for perfection, who's quickly throwing out anything that's not perfect, who has never been perfect, God, that's all of us. We're all going to be thrown out. Nobody will stand except you. So God, I pray that we'd be bold enough to proclaim that to share with our world that's so desperate for grace, that grace has been given by God Almighty through his son, Jesus. Help us to be faithful to that. God, as we sing this last song to you now, I pray that it be worshipful. I pray that we would praise you and honor you, but also I pray that we'd use this time to respond to your word how we need to. So work in our lives and in our hearts now, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.